0: Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI-certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick hello everyone greetings leaders from across the listening universe wherever you are welcome to episode 49 of the leadership window i am patrick jinx certified leadership and strategy coach and president of the jinx perspective and i've been looking forward to this episode this is uh this is going to be a unique one and i just think we have some wonderful content for you today I love frameworks. I love easy to think about things and, you know, numbers and framings. And we're going to talk a little bit today with Dr. Kaleem Islam, who is the author of a book called the 12 inch rule of leadership. The 12-inch Rule of Leadership, Proven Strategies for Career Success. And I'm just anxious. Uh, he's going to walk us through the 12 rules, and we'll talk about some other things. He's a, He is an absolute expert in the training world. Before we get going, I would like for everyone to hear uh, from Michael Wallace at Leadership Systems Incorporated, We are absolutely thankful for the partnership and the sponsorship of Leadership Systems Incorporated. They help make this podcast possible. And before we get going, I'd love for you to hear from Michael Wallace at LSI about how being a listener to this podcast is to your benefit with some amazing opportunities that they offer. Michael? Hey, this is Michael Wallace with
1: Leadership Systems Incorporated. And on behalf of LSI, I want to say thanks for supporting our friend Patrick
0: Jinks and the Leadership Window Podcast. We've been partnering with Patrick for many years, and we are so proud to have him represent us as an LSI certified executive coach. As a mutual friend, we'd like to offer you exclusive rates on some of the same training that Patrick has received over the years, as well as some new experiences that we've been developing. Head over to leadershipsystems.com slash See the upcoming training events on our calendar and register today to keep learning and growing. Again, that's leadershipsystems.com/slash jinks, J-I-N-K-S, for exclusive pricing on LSI's virtual and in-person training events. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Michael, and all the folks at LSI again for your uh, support. I am a proud adjunct coach and trainer at LSI, and they're just amazing folks. And if you are ever wanting to sharpen your skill set, when it comes to coaching your people, LSI is the place to turn. So let's get to our guest today. Dr. Kaleem Islam uh, is the uh, founder of the training We'll put that website on the web on the uh, podcast page, the training and we're going to talk a little bit about what the Training Pro Academy does and how you might be able to benefit from it. We're going to talk a little bit about agile training because that is sort of the unique distinction that Dr. Islam brings to his work. So we'll learn a little bit about what that is. But uh, Dr. Islam is a, uh, an expert in leadership development training. And this is all to improve the capabilities of individuals to perform their leadership roles within their organizations and he's been helping companies and managers uh, develop and and uh, train them on leadership development programs that uh, encourage the attainment of their business goals and again the company is the training pro Academy Dr. Islam has authored several books and training materials to uh, become instrumental to, the society where dictatorship suppresses leadership. And we'll talk a little bit about that concept too, but we're mostly going to talk about his current book, uh, the 12 inch rule of leadership, Dr. Islam. There's a lot more I could say about you. I'll let you say whatever else you want our listeners to know, but uh, we'll stop there. And I'll just say a tremendous thanks for connecting with me and coming on the show. I think this is going to be a great resource for our listeners. So welcome.
1: Well, Greg, um, you know, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you um, taking time to have the conversation. I love talking about leadership. I love talking about um, agile training, but I do think that I should probably be asking a bunch of questions. I actually saw your Ted talk and um, on what are you, a strategic <laughs> questioner? Oh, I, think, yeah. I think it was. <laughs> and I said, wow, I, I wish I had watched that, um, that Ted talk 30 or 40 years ago when I was teaching elementary school kids. And I certainly wish I had known about that concept probably about 30 years ago when I first started uh, leading folks in, in corporate America. So um, kudos to you for that, uh, that, that great um, TED Talk.
0: Oh, thanks. I'm glad you checked that out. Yeah, I have to remind myself often um, Dr. Islam to ask questions. You know, I'm a, I'm a trainer and a speaker and a teacher and I love to talk <laughs> like a lot of people do and uh, I, you know, as many years as I've been doing this and being in the coaching world, I still have to be aware and I have to pause and I have to let's get to the inquiry piece, which is one of the things I love about this show is I get to ask a bunch of questions but you can too along (laughs) the way so uh thanks for that introduction hey tell us a little bit about yourself and about the the uh, training pro academy and just you know tell us tell us what um you think would be valuable for us to know about about you and the business and kind of how you got to this place in your leadership journey
1: sure sure so so if i had to summarize my whole leadership um career uh, to to steal something from Steve Jobs, I'd have to connect the dots backwards. You really can't connect them forward. So after screwing up in college the first time, (laughs) I joined the military and decided I was going to change the world. And I was gonna change the world by being innovative and and by taking taking chances. So after eight years in the military, I completed my undergrad work. I, um, I left and I started teaching school K through 12 in a very poor community in, um, in Bush, Brooklyn. And it was one of those communities where the cars would drive by, you see the burnt out buildings, you would uh, and hear all the statistics about drug use and um, AIDS infections and, the, and those types of things. And And these were kids who, who never really had success in their academic careers. And by the time they were in fifth grade, they were ready to, you know, pretty much ready to drop out. And what, what I did, I started bringing in, I knew we had to do something different, so I started bringing in my own personal technology, and, and back then it was a brother word processor, <laughs> believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And we, we brought this into the classroom, and suddenly students who weren't paying attention they start, they started paying attention. So I guess I was uh, taking a chance by, or, or maybe being innovative by bringing that technology into the, uh, to the classroom. So, um, long story short, we had some tremendous success uh, t- test scores went up and I started doing more and more, um, uh, technology. And then my, my wife at the time, let me know that, um, uh, uh, the salary of a school teacher doesn't afford her the life that she thinks she deserves. <laughs> uh, uh, so I left K through 12 education and actually went into corporate education on, um, on Wall Street. And it was a move, and well, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but it was a move that broke my mother's heart uh, be- because she really loved the fact that I was a school teacher. and I promised I, w- I, would, um, I would go back. So I started working on Wall Street, doing a lot of technolo- technology stuff, and was asked a question or was, was asked to do a technology deployment. And I asked a real dumb question. I said, well, what's going to happen on Monday morning when you roll out this new technology over the weekend? And the response was, we're going to get a lot of calls to our help desk. Well, can you handle those calls? Well, we probably can't, but we have to deploy this new technology. So I said, well, guys, why don't we do something different? Why don't we go ahead and rather than deploy it big bang, why don't you train people first? And while they're in the training program, you deploy the software to their desk, they come back, and they can, they can use it um, right away. So we did that. That was a success. We had another technology rollout. We had the same scenario, uh, another success. And then the third time they came to me and I said, well, there's, there's no way that I'm going to do this again. Um, again, taking a chance. They said, well, well why not? I said, well, because we're, we're not being proactive. We're being reactive. We're playing whack-a-mole here, guys. We need to have a, a, a learning strategy. OK, we need to have a mission and a vision for learning as it relates to this particular company. It's got to be aligned with, with corporate goals and all that stuff. So I literally went home that weekend and and wrote up a strategic training plan, handed it to the president of the company, um, back then. And, and he said, we'll start, start hiring your staff. Okay. So again, taking chances, being a little, a little bit innovative. Uh, so we had success there. I had, I had responsibility for employee training, and then we realized that the same stuff we were doing for employees, we could extend to clients. So I got responsibility for client learning also. And this is back in the early 90s before, you know, the Internet was um, as, as popular as it is now. Um, but we started playing around with something called CD-ROM training, actually programming um, courses on a CD-ROM and then sending it out. And that was, you know, you know that was cutting edge. At the time. So I just kept pr- pr- progressing, um, doing more and more innovative, innovative stuff. And then after about um, you know 20 some odd years on Wall Street, I made my promise good to my mother, um, left corporate and went into uh, academia and I started a small uh, consulting firm, boutique consulting firm from the training and you know, that's in line with my belief in who I am. I believe that education is the great equalizer and that the right learning solutions can transform individuals, organizations, and societies. So what we do with the Training Pro Academy is we help facilitate this transformation by providing individuals, leaders, emerging leaders with learning solutions that help them reach their potential and communicate their value. And those solutions can be um, self-paced e-learning courses we have a lot of free resources that, that we give away we have assessments that are there where if you want to assess your uh, your leadership capability or uh, um, how agile you are as a leader you know all that stuff is up there too
0: That's a great setup that's a great background uh, so, and, and you've already prompted a couple of questions from me so w- as you have uh, evolved in your journey using technology as a training tool, what technology are you using today? What are you finding? Um, how are you finding technology to be of value in the training world of
1: 2021? Well, you know, one word, COVID, right? So pretty much for the last year, we, we, we've had no choice uh, but to do some type of technology-based uh, based training. So, you know, no one knew what Zoom was, you know, two years ago. now Now, everyone's an expert at at Zoom, if you think about it, let's think about this: just that one technology, right? The whole planet, you know, within a few months became really technology literate using Zoom,
0: (laughs) so, yeah, and and that's just, yeah. I don't know, I still go to some Zoom meetings sometimes and want to ask, how long have you been doing this now? (laughs) 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 What we say, that like the most three common words the past year are, you're on mute. Yeah, you're, you're on mute. You know, yeah. it's like you know we're we're not experts yet. No, I get what yeah. you're saying though, and you're right. Yeah. COVID COVID really did sort of push us faster than we probably would have gone otherwise into this world. Are there are there other sort of uh, elements or platforms generally in in the training world? that you're using, I mean, other than Zoom, obviously for Zoom meetings, we're doing, we're recording this podcast through Zoom mm-hmm. right now. So, um, but other than that, are there any other, you know, in other words, what's replaced, besides Zoom, if there is anything, what's replaced the CD-ROM for you? Like what's cool. what's the latest sort of general platform for training in your work?
1: Well, you have to have some some type of learning management system, some place where you house your content, some place where learners can go and access the content, where you can maintain where you can maintain their um, their records. I actually use a snazzy piece of, uh, of software, it's a plugin for WordPress called um, um, LearnDash, um, as my learning management system, that, and I use that to put content out to um, uh, to my clients. But there's a bunch of them. Some folks are using Teachable and you me to put um, to put learning content up. Uh, there's a plugin called Voomly. Um, uh, which is an online learning platform, learning management system where you can do that stuff. People are building courses with things like um, Camtasia and and, and Articulate 360. So I think one one of the things that's happened, there's been an expansion of uh, the technology tools that are available over the last 15, 20 years. Then there's been a contraction because some of these learning management system companies started buying the other ones. And then I would say there's been been yet another expansion where you have sort of small uh, small companies, small businesses, are creating these sort of niche technologies for people that have um, have specific needs. Um, one of my books, right, I um, that I most recently wrote, um, I use this program called um, um, Publisher Rocket to identify keywords to, to help make your um, uh, your book more findable on the internet. So I I, I think. Um, you know, in the past, you could be a generalist. I, I think now you have to be a specialist. You got to get really good at one technology or you have to outsource that stuff to um uh, to other people.
0: Oh, these are great because what you're prompting me right now, actually, I work mostly with nonprofit organizations, and you and I have talked about this offline. This podcast mm-hmm. is sort of really designed to talk about leadership, but mostly through a social sector lens. And so what I like doing is talking with people like you and figuring out what's the translation over into the nonprofit world. And here's the beauty of it is that nonprofits who generally would say, you know, we don't have the resources that corporations have for all this fancy, you know, Mm -hmm. bells and whistles technology. The reality is it ain't expensive anymore. And it also isn't difficult anymore. You don't have to have an it degree to build an online course. You really don't like I use a WordPress plugin as well. Uh, Dr. Kaleem mm-hmm. for my, uh, I've got a training program for rising, uh, rising CEOs in the nonprofit mm-hmm. sector and it's cohort based. And it, it like, I don't know, it just, pennies really. when it comes right Mm -hmm. down to it, to plug in and not a lot of effort to learn how to set it up, create Mm -hmm. some videos and even some interactivity and give and take nonprofits can do this stuff now. I mean, I'm doing this podcast with a, with a, with a roadie roadcaster, (laughs) which is a little, (laughs) a little, little four channel mixing board that plugs into Mm -hmm. my computer, buy a microphone from Sweetwater or guitar center or wherever you want to, you know, get it, get a decent microphone, Podcast platforms are free. Mine isn't, but Mm -hmm. many, many podcast platforms are like, you can do this stuff now. Anybody can pretty much do anything you want with technology. And I think a lot, there's still a lot of people that may not be aware of that.
1: Yeah. And you got to pick your poison. So if you just look at what uh, what Google is doing, you know, the Google Classroom and sort of the free tools that they um, uh, they they make available to to users, you know, that, you know, that that's phenomenal. So um, um, even um, Apple, I believe Apple has a classroom uh, sort of environment. If you wanted to, um, I think it's called Apple University. Yeah. where you know you, you could put you could put content up there I, I think you know for folks that are trying to do it you, you got to find a platform that works for you and just understand that there you know there's always going to be some negatives it's never going to yeah. do everything you want to do
0: that's right yeah that's right well I, I again I, I appreciate it um the the whole idea of context and and in terms of technology, one of the things that I've been talking a lot about recently is how we have to be very careful not to let technology replace relationship. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) did I just push a button? Is that what I just did? Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Facebook is, you know, that's not real social. I mean, they call it social media, but it can't replace a relationship CRM software, you know, that, I mean, there's a lot of nonprofits that, that get this fancy donor management software and they think, okay, now, now we're good at relationships. No, now you have a software platform. That's all that is, um, you know, training, uh, this technology is great, but there's nothing like a face to face being able to interact, ask questions, you know, do things. So don't we have to be careful with the technology that it doesn't replace like the human aspect of that? How do you balance that in your training world?
1: Yeah, well, that, that's sort of an instructional design challenge, right? So if, if you're designing courses, and so I agree with you that um, you, don't, you don't necessarily need to, to have a degree in instructional design or training and development to build courses, um, but, but I, I think that there is some benefit of having that background, having that formal training so that you understand um, how to put content together in a way that's going to make it most likely or more likely that the learner is going to master the content, yeah. um, um, and you know, so understanding Bloom's technology, um, excuse me, uh, Bloom's taxonomy, and understanding you know the work of Skinner and you know all, all these folks that sort of figured out how the brain works and, and how do you put uh, um, material together so that people can learn. I mean, in your um, in your actually TED talk, you you, you spoke to it, and, and you spoke to what happens when you ask a question. Right. Right. So an instructional designer, understanding the impact of questioning on the human brain when they're designing the instruction, they would build those questions designing design those questions into the instruction. Right. So that's, you know, and that's sort of something you learn when you go go through the training on how to, you know, on how to be an instructional designer. So um, so that's one thing. Um, So if, if you design it in a way that creates interactivity, you can better approximate the human interaction but the only way to have human interaction is to have human interaction.
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's a, that's a great way of saying that. Uh, it like we used to say about active listening. Uh, I, I love this. I, I forget now where I, I heard it, but just maybe, maybe less than a year ago. Oh, I wish I could remember who said this. But you know people go through active listening training and they teach you how, you know, to actively listen, like give eye contact and nod your head every once in a while and give an uh-huh and whatever whatever the active listening sort of things are. And uh and somebody somebody said the the best way to actively listen is to actively listen. <laughs> It, it, like it really, than that. like it really is that simple. Just listen. Yeah. Uh, you know, we you, if you are truly actively listening, the body language and the eye contact and everything else will happen automatically if you are yeah. just actively listening. So, anyway, that's uh sounds uh, similar uh, to what uh, you're talking about.
1: I just want to jump in here because because a mentor of mine um, said it differently. He said it's simple, but it ain't easy. That's
0: right. <laughs> that, that's true. That is true. <laughs> especially for some of us like me. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to get to the book before I do. There's one other concept. I just want to clarify for our listeners, agile training. I mentioned that in your introduction, it's on your website it, as a distinction from the common approach to training. Can you just take a moment and define for our listeners what agile training is and why you, why you, uh, espouse that particular um, concept?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, historically the tr- training and development has um, has used an, an approach called isd instructional systems design some people call it adding which is a sort of five phase approach analyze design development implement and evaluate and if you read any of the industry journals and this has been in there for years whether it's the astd now the atd the ispi international society for performance improvement all the hr organizations found wh- what what the data found was that the programs designed in this way weren't really meeting the needs of the business folks who are paying for the training, okay? So the things that typically happened was using this waterfall approach to training and development, um, it elongated how long it takes to create training. And a lot of times, by the time you built the program, uh, a lot of the re- requirements changed. So using ISD was a long, it was an elongated approach to developing training. Now, I've been lucky in my career that I've always had a lot of uh, a lot of autonomy and has been able to, to try different uh, approaches and I was always interested in using business methodologies or business uh, techniques to develop training as opposed to training techniques because I wanted to be able to speak the language of uh, the folks who were actually paying for it the businesses who I was um, I was supporting so early on when uh, when six Sigma was the the um, uh, um, uh, was was the hot, I guess, bright, new, shiny object, I had my organizations, we tried to use Six Sigma as a training development methodology. We had a lot of success, but like a lot of things, at some point, the the tail started wagging the dog, and that became overburdensome. And then I was introduced to something called Agile, and it's really interesting how, uh, how, how it came about. Um, I was running a global training organization for a large, um, for a large Wall Street firm. And um, my plan was to outsource my IT, my, my technology group. I just didn't think I was getting value from it. So I, I brought someone in to, to oversee that function. And his charge was to um, document all the processes, find a vendor for us to outsource th- that work, work to, and he would be responsible for it, but he would, wouldn't have any um, employees working for him, but he would have a bunch of vendors that he was overseeing. He said, give me six months to figure out what's going on. I said, of course. So about, about three months in, I said, hey, are we on target to, um, to go ahead and outsource this function? And he said, hey, I think I can make this work. Now, suddenly, within the next three months, a, a group a function within my organization that I didn't think was bringing a lot of value, and that we previously had nothing but complaints about. All of a sudden, everyone was singing their praises, and they were loving the work that we uh, that we did. And then this gentleman, his name was Marcus Smith. I, I don't want to take credit for what he did. Um, um, he figured out a way for us to cut budget, so we got rid of a big, expensive project management system. Went to a lightweight, agile um, project project management system. And things are working great with that group. So, myself, my direct reports, we had some conversations. that say, "Listen, if, it, if, if Agile can bring this group back from the brink of death <laughs> to being a high-performing organization, maybe we need to look at using it for the entire uh, for the entire organization." And we did. And what we found was a few things. One is that our internal customers who we typically had a uh, uh, not a good relationship with, you know, they, be, you know, they, they became um, our biggest fans. We saw that we were able to turn around content where, where it used to take us three, four, five, six, seven months sometimes to build learning content. We were delivering learning content to our clients every two weeks. Uh, so we were able to do things faster. We were able to respond to clients' needs uh, quickly. If things changed and if, if priorities changed, we were able to react to that change uh, very quickly by using agile by using agile principles. And for those of your learners or your, your listeners who don't know, agile comes out of the software development world.
0: Mm, okay. Okay, good. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the background. Just wanted to, I didn't want people to go agile training. What is that? So thanks for the yeah. background. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. I, we're going to probably get into some rapid fire here in a little bit. Cause I want to get to the book. Um, sure. The 12 inch rule of leadership. Mm-hmm. Fascinating yep. title, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. So let, before we get into each of the rules and I don't know with the, with the half hour, or so we've got left, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take mm-hmm. maybe a couple of minutes on each rule. But uh, just tell us where this comes from. I've, I found that fascinating, too, um, when I got <laughs> yeah. the book uh, of where this uh, where this concept even comes from. So take just a minute and, and tell us about the background of this book.
1: Sure, sure. Um, I'm actually a member of an historically uh, black fraternity. Um, and to get in, one of the things we had, this was years ago when People hazed, right? Uh, to get in, you had to learn stuff. There's a bunch of things you had to learn. So one of the things I had to learn to get into this organization was something called the 12-inch rule. And the 12-inch rule are 12 principles. Time value, best performance of duty, perseverance, the worth of example, the virtue of patience, talent of expression, economic wisdom, the value of character, kindly attitudes, pleasure in work, the worth of organization, and the dignity of simplicity. Now, I can't tell you what I had for breakfast this morning, right? <laughs> but after 40 years- <laughs> You got those down. I I can still recall that stuff, right? So what I started to notice in in my career as I would run into other members of the the organization and we would always joke, hey, 12-inch rule, 12-inch rule. And what I started to observe was that uh, folks fell into two camps, those who could remember it and rattle it off like me and those that would basically say, hey, that was a long time ago. I don't remember it. And my observation was that the individuals who could remember it, their career trajectory was a lot was very steep, whereas the ones who would say, hey, you know, that was a long time ago. Not that they didn't have successful careers, but the trajectory didn't seem as steep. Um, so I wanted to understand that. And, and, and by this time, I had left corporate and was in sort of straddling academia and consultancy. Uh, So my my plan was actually to do a a research study to sort of solidify my academic chops, get another peer-reviewed article um, out there and contribute to the body of knowledge uh, on leadership. So I was going to do what they call a uh, a phenomenological qualitative study. And and all that is, is you you look at folks who have had similar experiences and you see um, um, how it it shapes their thinking. Well, after about the third interview, I said, oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. The tips, the tricks, the, um, uh, the recommendations, the stories that the individuals that I interviewed were, were telling were phenomenal and had a lot of practical application. could really help a lot of people. So at that point, I said, listen, you know, we, we can't leave this in academia because no one going to read it but eggheads like me. <laughs> right? So we sort of shift, we shifted the focus from write, writing an academic study to write, writing a book with um, uh, in, in plain language, with uh, tips and recommendations and stories that can that that can help anybody, and that's how we came up with the um, the twelve inch rule for leadership.
0: Now, let me clarify: what was the research question? So, in other words, was it based? Was the research question in this study you did on the twelve principles, or was it more about? people who had some sort of framework that they had used throughout their career. What was the actual research question?
1: Right. So the, so the re, the research, the research participants were individuals who were trained in the 12 inch rule. Okay. And uh, who, it. Were, it who, were lead, who were, in was were and who were in leadership positions, meaning that you had budget responsibility or you had staff responsibility.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Okay. So got that, it. that, that was a criteria for being part of the, of the, um, um, the study, so we had a few questions um, initially. So one was, you know, how often do you use it, <laughs> right? Um, how important is it is it to you, and, and what do each of the principles mean to you, and, and and how have you used it in your career? So those are the types of questions that we asked.
0: Okay. Yep. So, and, and again, for a lot of this, for the, for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with this kind of research and the difference between qualitative and quantitative. So you didn't, you didn't do a study that quantitatively showed a correlation between any or all of the 12 principles and no. leadership trajectories, but you did discover it through qualitative, through interviews and things. How, how many people did you interview?
1: Oh, we interviewed like twenty-four people.
0: Yeah, that's that's a, that's <laughs> a great example, and,
1: that, that, and that's a lot. That's a lot for a qualitative, you know.
0: It is study yeah, a lot of times.
1: Good. I do five, six, seven people mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. sometimes. So, we interviewed we interviewed a lot of lot of people, um, and we got a lot of a lot of really good feedback. In fact, all the participants said that they use the twelve They have used the twelve inch rule every day of their professional careers and again you're talking about 30 40 years mm. right and and this is not a this is not a framework that w- that was put in place for leadership <laughs> right yeah. it was okay guys you know 40 years old, guys are trying to join the fraternity and they're trained in this now somehow this framework has been a a catalyst right for successful professional careers
0: oh that so this is becoming even more clear to me the 12 inch rule Mm -hmm. going back to your fraternity days Mm -hmm. was not about leadership principles. It was more about human print, just life, just being a being, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Okay. And that now what you've done with your study is you have found that, um, there is this phenomenon of uh, how it, it seems to have had positive effect on, on career trajectory. And here's what I would say that you just, I'm thinking out loud with you here for a minute. I'm wondering, you got me wondering now about additional research and maybe it's already out there. I'd have to look for it or you probably know research that shows. So for example, is it, is it because of these 12 rules as much as it is the fact that they had some framework that was ingrained? So for example, rotary has a four-way test. Is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Does it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? You know, the FFA, when you're in high school, they have a creed, a leadership creed. There are, there are a number of, of things that I might, you know, mirror to this 12 inch rule concept of your fraternity. And so my, would be wondering how much of the career trajectory trajectory is based on these particular 12 rules versus the fact that they had some con some intentional ingrained concept that they followed you, f- you follow me probably yeah, yeah. Lo- probably a little bit of yeah hope. so
1: I I, I I get your question and the answer is you know i don't know and so i know that there's well i would argue that there's no research specifically on the 12 inch rule mm-hmm. and um from that perspective yeah. right because you know
0: yeah, yeah, that would be I an interesting that'd be an interesting <laughs> quantitative study. But anyway, I just you yeah. just kind of pee because I'm a big believer in, in my coaching world. What I what I encourage my coaches to do is to number one, be intentional. Have a I love frameworks because they do. I they, love frameworks. They, they they help you remember things and they help you think about things. And then the the last thing I'll say, and then I do, we'll get we'll get to the book. Um, and I've said this before on the show, but I'll share it with you. Back when I first started this coaching business and and I was doing some training on leadership, one of the things I love doing is collecting and sharing definitions of leadership. You know, it was Dwight Eisenhower's definition of leadership. What is, mm-hmm. what is Marty Linsky's definition? It was John Maxwell's definition. And there is all these interesting definitions and none of them are exactly the same, but they all have value. And so I was doing a workshop one day and I was presenting all these and a professor from Duke university came up to me afterwards and he said, man, this was a really good workshop. He says, you missed one key definition. There's one person I would have loved to have heard their definition. I said, who's that? He goes, you, what is your (laughs) definition of leadership? You gave all these, you know, big names, but what's yours. And, and I said, man, I, I've never thought about my own. He goes, well, if you're going to do this leadership coaching work, you might want to have your own philosophy and point Mm -hmm. of view that is teachable. And so we craft this, by the way, the leadership window is the name of this podcast. It comes from my definition of leadership, um, which I won't, I won't go into. You can go to my website and look for it. But (laughs) what it, what it, what it taught me is um, CEOs of organizations need to have an authentic teachable point of view on leadership. And so I love this because this is yours and you embraced it early on and it became, it, be, it became part of your DNA. And for those, I'm, I'm assuming that for those that you interviewed that had these more positive career trajectories when they embraced and, and um, you know, personalized these 12 rules, I mean, that was that became part of their DNA, became their philosophy and their point of view, that made it clear to themselves as much as anybody else. Anyway, I'm just thinking yeah, I, out loud I, I, here.
1: No, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's, it's a great um, perspective. One of the things that that I think I found um, through this process is that everybody, back to connecting the dots backwards. <laughs> Um, that these individuals that I interviewed didn't set out to say, "Hey, I'm going to use 12-inch rule and mm-hmm. I'm going to apply it to leadership." Right? So they they were trained in this a while, you know, you know, some time ago. And to your point, it it became part of their DNA. But but I don't know if they 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 were consciously thinking about, "I've got to exhibit perseverance yeah. because this is part of a leadership framework." And it wasn't like that
0: man you just you're you're opening up so many research questions for me now it's like yeah i know so, i know so now right? it's is, like i so, love this
1: stuff right yeah so
0: now it's like what 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 made some of them what made it stick for some like what were the training aspects or the I mean, it could have been just the right place, right time, right point in someone's life where these things just resonated and they just became, you know, unintentionally and maybe even subconsciously a part of their DNA. But I think that's more I think that's more the case, mm -hmm. right, where where these concepts, these principles
1: were were drilled into them and they didn't consciously say, hey, let me apply this in a leadership um, uh, as part of my leadership responsibilities. I think it sort of became a way of, of doing work a way of getting things done, a way of behaving, um, which transcended or or mm. transcended into uh, their leadership approach. But because no one, no one that I interviewed said, yeah, I come in and I think about the 12 inch rule every day. And, you know, and, and I use that as my framework for, for doing my leadership activities. Mm-hmm. But over the course of, of the interviews, they were like, Oh yeah, you know, here's how I use it. Oh, uh, um, you know, uh, um, yeah. Trying to, trying to think one of the, um, one of the um, one one of the principles, the dignity of simplicity. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, here, here you know, here's how I do it. So, it, it, in some ways, it was almost like a um, an eye opening opportunity, a light bulb moment uh, for the individuals that I was um, interviewing mm. as we started talking through this.
0: Mm. Uh, it's just, it's so fascinating. And I want, I want to know so much more. What I mainly want though, is I want to get our listeners an idea of what these 12 rules are. And I certainly want to encourage you to get the book. It's absolutely, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and and I love it because these are these are good rules for for just life. I challenge anyone to argue with any of them. I mean, you know, yep. r- research aside, these just make good sense. Um, yep. But let's talk about them and uh, just walk us through, maybe take a minute for each one and and just d- define for us what they even mean uh, and and how it relates to leadership. So walk us walk <laughs> us through. Good luck. Good luck. I am, I am so,
1: I am so enjoying this. Co- I am so enjoying this conversation because I'm kind of a geek and I love geeking out with this stuff. Right? Uh-huh, so, me so, too. Here, so here's, here's the beauty of it. Right. So when I was joining the openness, joining the fraternity years and years ago, and, and, and even, you know, today, I was actually just at a national convention. There, there is no, there are no operational definitions for any of the principles associated with the 12-inch rule. Okay. Um, there, are, there are these principles, and I think that's in, in some ways genius because it, it allows an individual to interpret it and apply it in a way that makes sense for, uh, for them and in, in the right situation. So uh, the first principle of the 12-inch rule was something called time value. Now, when I was doing sort of my research, again, it was initially going to be an academic study. I said, let me sort of understand this stuff. And what, what I found was that, do you know what the number one waster of time is in corporate America? What would, what would you guess?
0: Um, um, Unproductive conversations would be my guess. <laughs> okay. So number one was email. Ah, well, <laughs> which is okay, unproductive conversation <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: in a lot of cases. Right. And number two were meetings. Well, well, I'm two, sorry, two meetings.
0: Say, say the second one again. Meetings. meetings, Okay.
1: Meetings being a waste of time. Oh, I believe that. So I tell, yeah. So I, I I tell the story. um, I tell one of my stories um, in the book, I just taken over, um, came came to a medium sized wall street firm. um, And I was, took over the responsibility of digitizing all of their learning content. Again, this is sort of back sort of pre um, not pre internet, but pre all that content being on the, um, the internet. Um, so I show up at my first meeting and it was actually being cheered by someone else at the time. We were doing a transition thing. So I show up at the first meeting. The meeting starts at one o'clock. I get to the room about three minutes before one. And I'm the only one in the room. <laughs> so about 10 minutes later. So now we're, we're uh, seven minutes after the meeting was supposed to start. The meeting host comes in. And then people just start drifting in one, one at a time. There was no agenda.
0: <laughs> mm, mm, they just started
1: mm, talk, yep. talking off, off the cup. And then the meeting ran late. Yeah, it, was, it was a tremendous waste of time. So finally, I just said, hey, guys, you know, I'm, I'm going to be taking this over. So since we don't have an agenda, you know, l- why don't you let me uh, read through the um, existing material, um, cancel whatever meeting invites were sent out. I'll send one out and, and we'll go from there. So I, we started the next meeting and the meeting started at one o'clock. I got there again, you know, about five minutes before one at one o'clock. I was the well. one more, one, one other person walked in the room, a junior person walked in the room. And at one o'clock, I just started the meeting with me and this one other person in the room. <laughs> right. Now the other people are coming in the room and looking at like, what's going on. He's talking, you know, he's, he's talking to an, uh, to an empty room mm. and they, they asked me, can you recap? No, the meeting started at one o'clock. We're not recapping. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Well, so long, long story short, the next meeting, everyone was there on time, right? Yeah. We had an agenda and, and we got stuff done. So time value is about a few things. One is is showing that, that you're making good use of your time. Uh, one, another one is that you're not disrespecting someone else's time. So if you show up late for a meeting, Right. You really did not respecting the person's uh, the time of the other people who was supposed to be on that meeting. Right. It's just disrespectful. So that that was sort of one of the stories that, that I shared in the book. We had uh, another gentleman uh, uh, who heads up. Um, he's a chief information officer for the city of Blooming Bloom, Bloomfield, New Jersey. And he tells a story. He was going to city hall t- um, to address one issue. And as soon as he got, it was a pretty important issue, but as, when he got there, he realized that there was a ransomware attack on the, um, on the municipality. So his story was, okay, listen, yeah, I had to go ahead and say, where do I spend my time, right? Do I spend it on what I initially came here to do? Or is my time better spent? Is it more valuable that I spend my time working on the ransomware, um, 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 attack. And so that's what he did. So these, so these types of stories around, you know, time value and ways you can gain time and, and be respectful of time are all throughout the, um, the book.
0: All right. So um, let me, let me pause you because the, like you were lighting all my buttons up right now, just on this <laughs> one principle, we could do the rest of the show just on this one principle. And I, I have to interject here and, and give you a couple things and our listeners' Um, I did a, a, a study for my book on strategic planning in the nonprofit world. And I, my mm. study mirrors what board source and some others have come up with in their research. And it basically says this board meetings. <laughs> One of my question <laughs> was how much time in your board meetings is spent at the, at the appropriate strategic level mm. versus the operational in the weeds level where boards of directors yeah. are not supposed to spend their time. And the answer, mm-hmm. so the, the real quickly, the, the survey said that the average number of times that a board meets in a year is six mm-hmm. and the average length of the time is about an hour. And then I asked, okay, how, how much of that time is spent on strategy? And 80%, 87% of the, we actually surveyed hundred organizations. So 87 of the 100 said less than half. Now mm-hmm. here's how I present that to boards. You're telling me that your governing body of this org, this $10 million organization with a, with a mission accountable to the world, this governing body spends less than three hours a year at the strategic level. Yeah. And they look at me and go, holy moly, that is an amazing waste of time that we're having, so really v- values. And then the second thing I will share with you is: here's what I love the most about this whole principle is e- it's time value, not time management. Yep, I've always said you can't manage time; it's a mis. The whole term is a misnomer. You don't manage time. Time is what it is. You can't change it. You can't add hours to it. You can't create an eighth day of the week. You can't, you know, people say, well, I just couldn't find the time. Time is not lost. It doesn't need to be found, (laughs) right? Oh, I just, did I make the time for it? Nope. You can't make time. You can't manufacture it. (laughs) All you can do is manage yourself and how you invest, how you choose to invest what you're doing with the time you're given. Exactly. And that, that's really, that's really it.
1: Exactly. And I, uh, you know, quite a few of the um, folks that I interviewed, they had the exact same quote They said, you can't get time back. That's right. You can make more money. You can't make more time.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. In, in your book, it says you can, it can never be recovered. Yeah. yeah. And, I'm,
1: and I'm not, I'm not surprised with your findings in, in terms of, of strategy and some of the clients that I, that I work work with, especially small and medium businesses, use the founder as a technician, And is and is uncomfortable unless they know every gory detail of what's happening Mm -hmm. in the business. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have you have sort of lack of spending your time or valuing the strategic responsibilities that you have as a leader. Um, Number one, um, not operating at a strategic level, really operating at a a very tactical level. I see common in small and in small and medium sized businesses. Yeah. And. You know, that, that may well be, you know, how we how we promote folks. I was at one time I was one of those brute force. I call it brute force leaders, right, where you're a subject matter expert. You're really good at this. And you just basically use brute force and your your knowledge of that particular vocation to push you through. I, I think I didn't really become a, a good leader until I had responsibilities that I had no idea Of what these areas did Uh, because because it forced me to ask good questions and it forced me to to actively listen and it forced me to value my time and ensure that I was spending my time doing the appropriate things.
0: Oh, this is so good. Uh, we have 11 more principles to go. <laughs> so, rock, rock on. Tell us about best performance of duty.
1: OK. Uh, best performance of duty sort of speaks for for itself. Um, how do you do your best when things are bad, <laughs> right? How do you do your best when things aren't uh, aren't going right? And I, I, I tell um, one of the stories I tell is we were working with, say, I uh, was working with a small, um, medium sized uh, um, HCM, Human Capital Management Implementation Firm. And two levels below me, quit. So the, the technician working on the um, on the actual project, the implementation uh, of quit, and then the project manager quit. <laughs> okay, so I had to come in and actually manage manage the manage the project. And we would go to these meetings, and they would talk at nauseating detail uh, about some really technical specifications that I didn't know and didn't care to know about. <laughs> <laughs> but I understood that you know we had to do a good job because if we didn't, we we wouldn't give get the follow up business. Um, so it's easy to perform at your best when you're doing things that that you uh, that you enjoy doing, mm-hmm. right? How do you do it when when you have to do things that you don't enjoy? Oh. How do you you know how do you how do you pull it out of yourself? You know, and so that's uh, best performance of duty.
0: I love it. I love it. Yep. Let's keep rolling. Uh, Perseverance? Yeah, per, per,
1: per, per, perseverance, right? Right. Uh, when the going gets tough, you know, how do you how do you keep going? One of the stories I tell early in my career I was doing some uh, technology rollout, and I had to um have to deploy the computers and this was back when you had to physically take the computer, put it on someone's desk and install the software from a, from a disc yeah. Yeah, that, that I, I don't know how many of your listeners are, are old enough to remember those days, but you know, that's what it was. And so I had to meet the, the VP who was responsible for that area. I go in and the, the thing about financial services, it, 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 it's funny. The place was called the cashiers is what they call the, um, the department. Um, but the slang term for that particular department was the cage. Because literally, (laughs) it was a cage (laughs) where these people were. So I walked into the cage, and the the whole room goes silent because, you know, no one went to the cage unless you worked there. And I had to walk all the way across the floor to the corner office where the VP was as everyone watches me. I get to the VP's door, and his gatekeeper, Angelante, his uh, secretary, we actually became very good friends. Um, And I can see him, he's in his office, his glass doors, and he's reading a newspaper. And I say, well, hey, you know, and I'd like to meet with um, with Fred. She said, well, he's busy. <laughs> and I'm sitting here looking at the guy reading the newspaper. I said, but he's just reading the newspaper. She said, he's busy. He can't meet with you now. So I walk back across the floor. You know, there's silence again as everyone wa- watches me. Now, this happened two or three times. <laughs> and I'm going back, and now my boss is asking, hey, when are you going to get those PCs deployed? And I haven't even met with the VP yet. Um, So finally, my third time in, I'm, you know, rejected again. I'm walking back across the floor and a gentleman, Ron Kowalski, pulls me into an office. He says, you know, Colleen, you're disrespecting Fred. He's a very important guy. And showing up here here in the middle of the day is disrespectful. Fred gets here at 7 o'clock in the morning. He likes his coffee sweet and light and he likes jelly donuts. (laughs) (laughs) So next morning, 645, I'm there in front of Fred's office with jelly donuts and coffee. He walks up. I said, hey, you know, Fred, I heard you like your coffee sweet and light. I hope you heard you like jelly donuts." He says, come on in, Colleen. Now, he had never said a word to me. I didn't even know he knew my name. <laughs> OK, so long story short, you know, we uh, we got the job done. We were able to, to deploy the, uh, the PCs. Uh, Fred and I became good friends. And I remember walking out of the uh, cashiers one day after, after meeting with Fred and uh, Ron Kowalski pulls me into an office again and says, you know, Kaleem, you know, you came forth, you came back four or five times to get the job done. Most people will stop after the second time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But
1: and that's by, per- perseverance.
0: and yeah. by the way, just a quick, a, a quick note, I, a, as I understand the book and, and, and as I went through it, you've got a lot of quotes and samples from people. And I'm guessing this is. Directly from your research, so yes. the people that you interviewed for your research are the people that you highlight in the book and how they're actually yes. applying these things, which I think is brilliant. Uh, talk yes. about the uh, talk about the next one.
1: Yeah, so worth of example. So the story in the book, uh, uh, Joseph West, Harvard trained epidemiologist, and again, this is sort of the pre-internet uh, where you can just go online and see everyone's pictures. And he was working with this um, firm to try to get some business. And he does um, big data stuff for, for, uh, for healthcare companies. And so he gets the meeting and he, he walks into the meeting. And uh, as soon as the executives walk into the, into the room, he can see on their faces that, wow, these guys did not expect that Dr. Joseph West from Harvard was going to be an African-American. Not anything bad was it was obvious they were, you know, they were surprised. So they start talking. And um, as it turns out, they had a lot in common. So, you know, this guy was a, a avid golfer. He's a um, cigar aficionado. He, you know, he, he's a he's a, um, a, a lover of all things Ronald Reagan. And they hit it off. He gets the deal. And um, about six months in, they say, hey, listen, do you have any other firms that are just like you? Who can do this type of work? So, because his because his example was so good, he was able to help other you know, small, medium sized businesses um, get an opportunity. So, it's, it's important that a leader always shows a um, uh, presents a good example. It can it can impact promotion. It could impact you know, your finance. What businesses you um, excuse me what um, what deals you're able to close. Okay. Uh, the virtue of patience. Uh, Mike Dubb, a VP out of PSCU, a financial services firm in, um, in St. Petersburg, Florida, you know, mm-hmm. tells a story about how his team would get frustrated because they would make recommendations to senior executives, and it felt like uh, these um, recommendations were never, um, were, were never implemented. And so what Mike had to say to his team was, listen, guys, you got to be patient. Okay, just because we make a recommendation doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. Sometimes these things take time. And so he instructed his um, his team members at any time they present a recommendation, even if they don't hear back, to keep it somewhere, keep it in the file somewhere, because he guaranteed that at some point the executives are going to come back and ask about it. And it happened three or four uh, four times. And. So as a result, number one, uh, he taught his team how to be patient. <laughs> okay. Num- number two, they didn't see rejection as um, as something negative. They just saw it as something that um, it, it, it might not be the, it's the right idea, but it might not be the right time. And so his employee engagement scores went up tremendously because um, he was able to teach his folks to be patient. And that patience uh, would also happen as a result of that that patience was when the executives came back, these guys didn't have to restart all their research because the stuff they did before that wasn't acted on, they had it in a, um, in, in a, in a file cabinet somewhere. So that's another one.
0: Mm. Now this okay. is, and this is r- yep. really applicable to a lot of our listeners because, uh, man, things move excruciatingly slow in the nonprofit world. Um, mm-hmm. and it just like, in my opinion, too slow. And so sometimes the, the pa- it's not even patience that's causing the delay. It's just more just, I don't know, bureaucracy mindset, something. Mm-hmm. And so there's a balancing act. And, and one of the things that I've really had to work on myself, cause I'm not the most patient person is that when I'm working on something that's just me, I can go as fast as I want. And I can learn and I can, you know, and patience even then is valuable because, you know, if I go too fast, I don't learn what I need to learn. But when you're leading and you're leading others, uh, that patience becomes more and more important. The, Dr. Marty Linsky at um, Harvard defines leadership as disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb And,
1: uh, I love that. And that
0: that's where that patience comes in because a lot of leaders will disappoint their people and they'll exceed that absorption rate because they're impatient and they want the change Mm -hmm. to happen now. Uh, so I I love this one. Keep going.
1: Yep. Um, talent, talent expression. I mean, the old saying, if, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, you know, it doesn't make us, doesn't make a sound. Mm. If you have a particular skill set, um, that can be beneficial to the to the organization. You need to let people know. Right. For two reasons. Mm-hmm. One, it, it benefits the organization. Number two, if it's a skill that you're good at, you probably enjoy doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. So you might get the opportunity to do to do more of it. We had a um, a, a woman who worked for me. She was probably maybe two, I know she was two levels down for me because um, um, I found this out when I did my my two down, one of my two down meetings. Uh, so we're, we're having some conversations and I'm just asking, hey, you know, you know, what do you like to do when you're not at work? What, what are some things that you um, that you do? Now, mind you I was running a learning um, organization and we had started doing a bunch of uh, e-learning. And one of the challenges that, that we had was, was, number one, the expense of finding voice talent and then finding good voice talent. Well, guess what? It turns out that, that this woman who was writing documentation for us, she was a, a technical writer um that's what she did on the side she did voiceovers
0: <laughs> yeah
1: right so we were able to we were able to leverage something that she was good at that um uh that she enjoyed doing we were able to leverage that so uh and and she found that beneficial and she really liked working for us because in addition to her quote-unquote day job uh, which was the technical writing she got an opportunity to do something that she was good at and she was able to express her talent as a, um, as as a voiceover person.
0: I, I love that. And, I, and I'll add, add a second dimension to it from my perspective in the leadership world is it's one thing to express your talent and make it known. It's another thing for a leader to create an environment where that is, that is encouraged. So, uh, you know, I remember I, I had a pastor once years ago who said that we wanted to create an environment where people's gifts and talents make room for themselves. And I just, yeah. I always loved that phrase he used for that, but a leader has to allow that. I mean, I, I've seen organizations where there's tons of talent, but the leader doesn't draw it out and invite it and, and appreciate it and use it. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a two-way street in terms of that, that talent expression. Yes. The other thing I remember is Kevin Cashman, um, another, another one of my nerdy leadership definition, uh, gurus. He, he defined leadership as authentic self-expression that creates value. Mm, And so, and he said, it's a three-legged stool. It has to be authentic because people see through the superficial pretty quickly. It has to get expressed. Like if you're thinking it in a meeting and you walk out and you talk about it in the hallway, but you didn't express it in the meeting where it needed to be expressed. Well, then that's not leadership. (laughs) And the 3rd
1: I've and heard the thir- that term, with the, they call it the second conversation. That's
0: right, that's right. And then the third stu- leg of the stool is that it has to create value, authentic self-expression that creates value. And so we all know a bunch of authentic self-expressors. <laughs> mm-hmm. They don't They don't always create value with their expression. Sometimes it's destructive and it's pointless and it's a waste of time. back-to-time value. That's another interesting thing. Ooh, mm-hmm. see, I'm geek- now I'm <laughs> geeking out, is how these <laughs> it- principles relate to each other.
1: Exactly. How, you, you said something earlier, you know, you mentioned something earlier about um, um, uh, working on, on patients and, and during the study, what, what came out loud and clear is every leader that, that I interviewed said, you know, patients, I'm not good at being patient, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. not
1: good at it, yeah. <laughs> but they, you know, the thing is they were aware, they were consciously aware That's of it. Right. So they were working on it, but they understood they weren't good at it. Right.
0: That's right. Oh, this yeah. is awesome. Keep going.
1: Yeah. So economic wisdom is the next um, is the next principle. And, you know, if you're working for an organization, it's not your money. It's the organization's money. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you have to understand that. So um, Nigel Cuelo, he, um, uh, he, is a six Sigma guy and he uh, heads up manufacturing for I think Nestle's, uh, Nestle's waters Inc. And uh, so he tells a story about how they had to, they had to make some decisions about where they were going to spend their $30 million budget, you know, uh, you know, so which facility were they going to invest that money in? And so just going, going through that process, he could have invested it in one um, facility and it would have been short term gains, but sort of long-term loss. Um, Whereas the second facility um, it would have been a short-term loss, but a long-term gain for the, for the company. And so when he presented it, you know, he presented that, that the long-term gain was, was more beneficial to the company, even though the short-term gain would have been beneficial to his, to his specific organiza- organization. But he went with the long view. Right. And ended up being promoted as a result of it because he was thinking more, more strategically. So um, you want to get fired, mess up the company's money. And that's an easy way to to to, um, to make that happen.
0: Mm. And, you know, um, I, the term you're the, the concept you're describing here is stewardship. And, yeah. you know, and again, back to our nonprofit leaders, um, we're we're stewards. Not it's not it's not even company money. Now it's the, it's the, it's the community's money and, Mm -hmm. and they are the actual owners, even though they don't realize they're owners of, of the mission. And so, uh, that I find that interesting. The other thing I find interesting, uh, Dr. Islam is one of the assessments we do with our coaches is an assessment on motivators, what motivates you. And there's, it's across seven dimensions. Am I highly motivated by aesthetics? Am I highly motivated by power? And one of them is economics. And what I caution, Mm. a lot of our leaders who have a low economic motivator, which Mm -hmm. you see a lot, by the way, in the nonprofit sector, because their motivators are usually more altruistic. So a smaller economic motivator, and I'll often caution them and say, remember that your board might be motivated by the economics. Remember that your organization, even though it's a nonprofit, needs to make a profit. (laughs) You need to bring in more than you're spending. You need to be healthy. You want to grow. That helps you advance your mission. So when we're when we have a low economic motivator, that can actually have a negative impact on the organization. And we and again, we just have to be aware of it. It's okay to to that's not one of my great values, but I'm now not in this for me. I'm a steward. So I, I economic wisdom, what a what a good one to, to put in there. And then the value of character. I'm excited to hear oh, about this one.
1: Yeah, the value the value of character, right? I mean, I, I think um adversity, um, doesn't enhance your character; it reveals your character. Mm-hmm. And so, in the book, there's a Reverend Reverend Dr. Um, Tyree Anderson. He he talks about how he he took over um, as CEO of a church in Huntsville, Huntsville, Alabama. So he was the new pastor there. And what he started to notice was that people were sort of walking in during the sermon, and it was disruptive. So he put in place some new rules where there were only certain times during the service where people, latecomers, could could come in. And so some of the people who had been members of that congregation for a long time weren't used to it. And he he talks about how uh, I guess when they do a meet and greet at some point during during the service, one of the sort of uh, more seasoned members of the congregation came up to him and literally cursed him out on the floor of the church in front of, in front of everyone. And he talks about how, you know, it, it took everything in him to maintain his character and not sort of not respond in a way that would diminish his character. Mm. So uh, that's his, that's his story. But I, I think that, you know, it's not unusual in the work world that there's there's, there's, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be differences of, of, of opinion Right. Um, where there's going to be times where you think you're right and, you, and it, the other person is, is definitely wrong. Right. And, and so, how do you, you know, how do you have those conversations, but you have it in a way that doesn't assail your, um, your attitude or, or, um, um you know, your character?
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And your projection, yeah, yeah. Exactly. what you said, I think a lot of people would find it cliche to say that adversity reveals, not builds character. I never want that to pass over and get dismissed because of, of its commonality, because there is an extreme depth of truth in that statement. Mm-hmm. It really does. And it's why, for example, that a lot of corporate leaders will interview uh, prospective executives on the golf course. Yes. So, yep. you know, how does this person handle it when he, you know, slices three shots in a row or misses a a, a pot or you know, uh, mm-hmm. just you know, makes a fool of himself in front of all of his peers because he can't play golf that well. How does he? That's handle my golf it? game. How does he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's my golf. <laughs> just game. described you, yeah. And so, <laughs> and they and they're tricky about it. The artful, the artful leaders are tricky. They'll just say, oh, okay, well, you know, the interview's over. This has been great. Let's just relax now and and go. And we, we want to treat yes. you to a round of golf. But what they're yep. really doing is they're watching. Mm-hmm. To see how you how you handle the the social aspect of golf, the mindset, the and particularly adversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep moving.
1: Okay, um, kindly attitudes. So um, we had an executive from um, UPS who tells a story of one of his employees who was doing a bunch of bad stuff. I mean, he was you know falsifying. Um, expense reports he, he was he wasn't showing up um, at, at, at appointments and um, so Kobina um, had to actually Kobina fu- Thomas is the um, the gentleman's name, who was the leader there. and um, he had to fire the guy but but he, but he speaks about how he was able to do it in a way that allowed the individual to maintain their dignity, mm. even though, you know, the things they were doing were, were egregious enough to have them fired. And he says that that's all about the attitude, showing a kind attitude, even when, you, you know, you have to provide negative feedback to someone. So that's, that's one of the stories that's in the book around kindly attitudes, mm. uh, pleasure and work. So we have a lawyer, he's actually the um, editor in chief, for one of the, um, um, uh, um Lawyers, um, one of these legal associations uh, editorial paper that comes out once, once a quarter, um, very successful lawyer up in, um, in southern New Jersey. And he tells a story of, of being able to help a woman who was wrongly terminated. And the woman comes in, I mean, if, you know, just being terminated, period, is a traumatic experience. And if you felt you were, you were wrongly terminated, um, it can be even more uh, stressful. And he just talks about the pleasure that he got, not because he was getting paid. I mean, you know, he's, he's a lawyer to make mon- money or he's a lawyer to, uh, to provide good service and as a result, make money. But he, ha- he got so much joy and so much pleasure that he was able to calm her down. So, you know, you know after having the conversation, she felt a lot better and he was able to get her a, a, a package um, that put her in a good, put him in a good position. So, um, finding pleasure in what you do. And even if the job that you have is not your, uh, your dream job or your, your, your destination job, finding something in that job that you enjoy doing and then trying to figure out how do I spend more time doing, doing just that. So hmm. that's the story about me, pleasure and work. I'd but, like
0: to, I'd like to interject on that one. Um, I'm seeing more and more relationships between the principles. So yeah. pleasure in work relates very much to the previous principle of kindly attitudes. It relates Absolutely. very much to best performance of duty. It yeah. relates. And I think, yeah. Uh, so I love the relationship between these.
1: And that's the beauty of it. I, I love um, a values based, and that's about about consider this. It's a values based approach to leadership. It is. You know?
0: It is well said. <laughs> that's exactly what this is. Yeah. I love it. Um, Oh, well, there so worry uh... we would
1: we were at the um, oh the worth of organi- the worth of organization yeah right um, so this this is this is one of those principles that allowed folks to have different interpretations of what these things meant. So one person, uh, Will Worley, and he's a principal at a school in um, East Orange, New Jersey. And when I asked him about it, he says, I look at this as two words, worth as in being worthy, am I worthy to be here, and what do I owe the organization? You know, what can I provide for the organization? That was his interpretation. Meanwhile, um, my friend Dr. Joseph West out out of Harvard, he looked at it as being organized, making sure you have systems in place, making sure you have information capture systems and communication systems and making sure that, it, you know, you had folders to put your project work in. Uh, so that's how he interpreted it. So uh, the work of the organization is just another one that depending on how you, you know, how you read into it, you can apply it in a way that makes sense for uh, for you. And then the last one is the dignity of, of simplicity and this is um, the person who is featured in the book on this one is actually a former NCAA um, uh, football champion for the University of Florida, Jerome Evans. He's now a, a big sales e- executive. But, you know, uh, you know, your readers, you know, if they follow college football, they may um, the name may uh, may be familiar to, to them. But he talks about um, communicating in a way that people can understand it and, and you don't have to use big words <laughs> right and he speaks about how it turns how it turns him off uh when, when people try to use you know 10 15 25 dollar words to make themselves um, seem important right but they make it they make things complicated because no one understands what they're what they're doing so um so from his perspective there, there's a certain dignity that mm. you gain or that you exhibit when you explain things in a simple way.
0: So um, this one might resonate the most with me of all of them. I'm not sure, but in my, in our brand construct at the Jinx perspective, Dr. Islam, we're about helping our clients achieve three things, clarity, simplicity, and alignment. Mm. So if you think about this, you know, we do a lot of strategic planning (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and I've seen, you know, 50 page, 100 page strategic plans. And, and, and nobody, (laughs) and nobody knows what to do with it because, because it's not simple. And, you know, the people that think that complexity means excellence and that if we're going to create a strategic plan, let's make it as comprehensive and complex and scientific and academic and fancy and all that, that as we can versus just the simplicity of it, because if people can't grasp it, it's never going to get executed. Absolutely. Um, I, Absolutely. I, I love, and I, I I'm compelled to read a quote in your book from Ernest flag about simplicity. I just love this simplicity and dignity are so nearly related that they may be considered together. A quiet air of reserved power is characteristic of dignity and that is best obtained by simple means and the absence of apparent effort. Simplicity is the mark of genius. The giant in art does his work easily without straining and without affectation. His ways are direct and to the point. Mm. (laughs) It's just that I've never seen that before. I'm, I'm totally taking that and putting it on stuff because that's, that is exactly what we really want to help our leaders achieve both individually with their teams, with their strategy. This is, this is, I love this one. I really do. Um, I, man, Dr. Islam, I I've just, I, I truly want to thank you. This has been enriching for me. You have grown me as a leader today. Um, you, you've, you I know you've given our listeners just tons of generous content here. And I want to encourage our listeners because I know you probably won't um, get the book because these you went. I forced you to go very quickly through these because it's a podcast and we only have a, a limited amount of time. But. Um, there are more and more and more stories and applications of these principles in the book, and I will just highly recommend this. Um, I think this has just been outstanding. I, I'm so grateful for you. I'm glad we connected. This is, this is just super for us, and it's been personally enriching for me.
1: Wow, oh, I'm I'm humbled, Pat. I really appreciate you having me as a, as a guest, and I um, I really hope that your listeners get something out of this. If they only take one thing away, I think if you can learn one thing a day,
0: yeah, if all of us yeah. can
1: learn just one thing a day. Think how much smarter we'll be at the end of one year. <laughs>
0: <So>, Three hundred and sixty-five <laughs> concepts smarter. That's right. There um, we go. I want to ask you a couple more questions before we uh, sign off, uh, Doctor Islam. The questions that I like mm-hmm. to ask all my guests, and the first one is. Uh, tell us about uh, a leader. I'll, I'll have you maybe pick out one, two, if you're really if you're really compelled to do so. But a leader or two in your life that you would say have had a great influence on your perspective and philosophy on leadership and why.
1: Yeah, so one is there was a um, I'll say her name. She's a phenomenal leader, um, uh, polar office um, when I was at DTCC, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, very large um, uh, Wall Street firm. And she was the first boss um, that when I started reporting to her, asked me, what do you want to do with your career? Where are you trying to go? (laughs) Great question. And, and, what she did whenever we would have one-on-one sessions, she would always pull that out, and she would say, "Okay, listen, hey, what are you doing to get you to your next to the next level to what you said you wanted to do?" And so she spent a lot of time introducing me to people, um, coaching me, and and, uh, uh, and and helping me achieve my dream. And so I, I took that as, "Wow, I want to do that." And and so my definition of leadership is servitude. You're a servant, and my job as a leader is to help. The folks that I work with or that work for me, however you want to say it, is to help them reach their dreams, whatever those dreams are. And I've just had experiences where this has just uh, tr- turned out beneficial for the organization and for the individual. I had one person who we um, uh, we hired. I asked them that same question. What, are, Where are you trying to go in your career? And the person didn't join the training group because they wanted to be a professional trainer. They saw it as an entryway into the um into the organization. This person really wanted to work with our derivatives group. And so I, when I found out, I said, okay, listen, got it. Um, you know, let's help you get there. So one of the things we, we did was we put him on projects that supported that line of business so that he can get the, the exposure. Um, he went the extra mile because he was so interested in it. He became our uh, sort of local uh, subject matter expert. So fast forward about a year and a half, a position became available in that group. And the uh, the, um, uh, the president of that particular business came to me and said, Hey, listen, you know, I heard you got a guy that's trying to get in the business. We have a position open. I went back to my, my guy Lou And I said, Hey, Lou Remember when I first met you, you said you were trying to get a, a position in the derivatives group where there's a position available and um, you know, we can transfer you over if you want. Guess what he said. What was that? No, I'm staying here. I'm having such a great time here.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So I, I think a leader is a servant and that's what um, Paul Artis did for me. Uh, and the second leader, I would say I've never, well, I actually did meet him one time, but it was just sort of a, a handshake deal. Uh, but Colin Powell oh, yeah. as a leader and, and, and what I admire about him, his, his, his first book, he had no negative comments about anyone. He always found something good in everyone that he worked with. <laughs> and I said, wow, you know, what a great way to look at things. Right? So so I, I just adopted that, that, that I would always try to find something good in any and everybody uh, that I interacted with uh, as a result of that. Well, number one, you get just from a sort of a, 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 a cultural thing, you, you never have to have, worry about anyone coming back saying, you know, you said this or you said that about me or you said something, something negative about me. Mm. And it's almost like the old, um, what is it, how to win friends and in, in, influence people, uh, yeah. Dale Car- Carnegie.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know? uh, you, you'd be surprised how just, just adopting that, trying to find something good, Catch, catching people doing the right thing. And complimenting on that, you know, how much that will just sort of transition uh, your trajectory as a leader.
0: Yeah. And there's there's plenty of research out there on the the whole appreciative nature and, yep. and the more, uh, how much more effective that is than the punitive nature of, of leading people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I love it. Last question for you. If you had, you know, 20 seconds to tell the world, Hey, this is, this is the Dr. Kaleem Islam, number one tenet of leader leadership. Like you had one message to deliver to all leaders about the most important concept of being a leader. And what would it be?
1: Be a servant. Hmm. Look out for your people. You know, help people achieve their dreams. If you help people achieve their dreams, they'll help you achieve yours.
0: Man, I love it. I love it. And it's consistent with everything you just shared with us, uh, Dr. Islam, as well. Listen, man, I, I can't tell you how much this is one of my favorite episodes. I'm, I've just got so much out of this. Um, I'm going to put on the, um, the podcast page, folks, there is a link to the trainingproacademy.com is the website. You can access the book there. You can access it on Amazon. I got it on Kindle because uh, I'm. Uh, it's where I read most of my books. But it's called The 12-Inch Rule of Leadership. And by the way, it has nothing to do with inches or feet. It's just a great way to remember the book. Um, the 12-Inch Rule of Leadership is the book. The TheTrainingProAcademy.com is the website. Dr. Kaleem Islam is the, um, the giver of this wonderful and valuable content. Thanks again, Dr. Islam. Appreciate your coming on the show. Folks, I hope you take this to heart and uh, hope it's enriched your day as it has mine. Lead on.